time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Wednesday, July 29th, 2009. August is almost upon us. And in the Truth is Stranger Than Fiction category, in just a couple of weeks, my uh, daughter starts school. Yeah. They start things a little bit earlier out here in the Midwest. I think they need to uh, have like a buffer for snow days. But they do get out earlier if they don't use up their snow days. So that's a positive thing. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Today we have a themed program, if you would. Sometimes it's, this just happens. You know, uh, the news of the day happens to be about uh, the Bible, the biblical definition of marriage, and homosexuality. And so our entire program today is going to be dedicated in one way or another to that particular topic. Uh, From the email that I read to the news stories that are covered to the Bible passages that we're going to be going through today. Yeah, today I thought would be a good time to actually sit down and do kind of an exhaustive look at uh, what does the Bible clearly say on the issue of, first, how, how is marriage defined? And second, what does the Bible say regarding homosexuality? We'll talk a little bit about some of the liberal, quote, progressive uh, reinterpretations of these passages in order to kind of open the door for uh, m- monogamous and committed loving homosexual relationships and uh, really see if that bears itself out in the, in the clear teachings of Scripture. And then to uh, cap off the day, I thought it'd be fun for us to do a Carrie Shook uh, sermon review. And we're going to be reviewing a sermon from Carrie Shook entitled The <clears throat> Biblical Recipe to Make Women Feel Valued and Loved. Yeah, it's a, it, the short title for that sermon is Gourmet. So we're going to be doing some cooking with Carrie Shook today. Oh, boy. <laughs> so going to be all kinds of fun. Just sit down, make yourself at home, get relaxed if you uh, ha- would like to enjoy listening to Fighting for the Faith while enjoying a, an adult beverage. We do not have a problem with that. Keep in mind, Jesus turned water into wine. It was not grape juice. It was the good stuff, so we don't mind if you enjoy a glass of wine while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And those of you uh, exercise fanatics out there, we have gotten an email from somebody who's lost four pounds while listening to Fighting for the Faith. So we are trying to see if we can't register the program as an officially uh, recognized weight loss product. So uh, that's all good news. So with that in mind, we're going to just dive right into the program today. And I'm going to start with an email from Andrew Deloach. Now, Andrew Deloach, he apparently has fallen behind on his um, listening to Fighting for the Faith. And apparently this has to do with the fact that he went to France. (sighs) Yeah, uh, he he was able to go to the uh, John Warwick Montgomery's uh, Apologetics Academy. It's... This year, you know, they just finished it up. It was a star cast. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. So I'll have to instead uh, get the notes from Andrew Andrew Deloach. He uh, has uh, fired up his program again, Take the Stand, which airs here at Pirate Christian Radio. 
and uh, it has a decidedly um, French feel to it, in the sense that uh, the stuff that he's uh, covering in his program uh, sounds like he's been in the uh, presence of uh, Rosenblatt, Montgomery, Horton, Parton, and the like. Anyway, <clears throat> just had to throw that in. Do a little bit of, um, you know, um, Christian grumbling, because, you know, grumbling is such a Christian... Maybe it's not. I should repent. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let me get to his email. He says, "He says, uh, hey, Chris, I was way behind. Uh, I'm way behind listening to Fighting for the Faith, but thought I'd offer a quick thought in case you discuss Jay Baker again. By the way, there's this groundswell of uh, people on Twitter who are sending out tweets basically saying that Jay Baker should debate me on this topic. Hey, I think it'd be a great idea. Jay Baker and I at a public forum debating what the Bible says about homosexuality. It's, you know, I I just think it would be a benefit to the body of Christ and rather fun and insightful. Uh, but then again, you know, that may not jive with his version of spirituality because debating involves judging and, uh, well, never mind. Um, we continue. As I listened to him talking with Larry King, I asked myself a question I've asked many times lately with respect to the willingness of some, quote, pastors and churches to embrace homosexuality. If we're willing to accept homosexuality as not really a sin, why stop with homosexuality? Now, this is a, this is a great question. Now, logically, this somebody would say, well, you're just engaging in the slippery slope argument. But no, actually, he's not, because the Bible lays out clear prohibitions against it. We'll get to that shortly. And so we continue with the email. He says, if Jay Baker, Nadia Bowles, Weber, yeah, you know about Nadia? Uh uh, Andrea, did I mention her? I, anyway, uh, et al. are correct in embracing what the Bible calls sin and transforming it into non-sin, such that one need not repent, but instead may celebrate his diversity and call it blessed by God. I see absolutely no reason to forbid the unrepentant child molester, thief, or adulterer. I see no reason why a young, hip, punk pastor cannot start his or her own revolution-like church and orient that church's ministry around the idea that adultery is no longer a sin, that adulterers can stay active and adulterers can uh, still call themselves Christians and the adulterers will find this uh, church a safe place uh, where there's no condemnation of their, quote, lifestyle. Baker et al. Uh, can give uh, no principled argument with their open embrace of unrepentant homosexuality should not equally uh, openly extend to their embrace of every other sin. The reasons they give for willingly ignoring God's word on homosexuality are equally applicable to murder, adultery, child molestation, theft, or goddess worship. Now, uh, it's funny that you would say that. Um, um, the The reason I say that is because the current progressive, <clears throat> whenever you hear that word, you hear the word progressive, Translate it as liberal. That liberals are not progressive. They're liberals. Okay, they deny the authority of the Word of God and really, basically, engage in the biblical game of twister. You, you, you all familiar with that game where you you know you, it's this mat with multicolored dots on it, and somebody spins the wheel, and you, and they say put your right hand on a green space on a green dot, and then they spin it again, and I have to put your left foot on a purple dot, and you, you play with multiple people, and it it looks ridiculous. And anyway, liberals engage in the current engagement. Uh, on the topic of homosexuality, literally looks like the the biblical version of, of Twister. Now, here's the deal: they're 
apologetic, if you would, at this point, is that the biblical prohibition against uh, homosexuality has been misinterpreted for these 2,000 years. Um, See, all of Christian history was wrong on this, and uh, instead, what was really being prohibited in the Bible was exactly that— uh, child molestation, uh, uh, tr- uh, basically uh, in the form of um, uh, of temple prostitution. That in, you know, basically think of it of, as little boy callboys, you know, or little boy escort kind of things. So they 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 do not uh, the the liberals still believe adultery is a sin. And what they're trying to do is crack open the interpretation of Scripture in such a way that it still prohibits uh, egregious sins like um, pedophilia uh, and even adultery is, is, not, is, not, is not looked upon positively. Instead, what they're trying to do is crack it open the Bible in such a way that they can give their Christian blessing to a committed monogamous homosexual loving relationship. That's what they're trying to do. And so, um, but you're right in saying though that their hermeneutic, if you if you take it to its logical conclusion, you can make the same case for these other sins, and we'll explain that as the program proceeds. He. Deloach also says, he says, uh, I, yet I suspect that a few active and unrepentant child molesters seeking a safe church without condemnation would be welcomed by Baker or Bowles Weber. Not exactly. And we'll, we'll, so that I think you got to keep in mind that's really not their argument at this case. They're trying to find a way to crack open the interpretation of the Bible to allow for monogamous homose- uh, homosexual relationships uh, and and still at the same time condemn those uh, those other types of sins. But uh, with that in mind, what I'd like to do, I'm going to switch gears here. We're doing things a little bit out of order here today on the program, and I apologize. But his uh, Deloach's email, really the, the, the next logical segue, segue would be to actually spend some time in the biblical texts really looking at this exhaustively. What does the scriptures teach on this matter? What has God said to us? And what is the clear uh, interpretation of these scriptures? Does does God basically not care who you have a committed relationship with, male or female, irregardless or irrespective of your uh, your sexual, you know, whether or not you're male or female, or does he truly condemn homosexual sin? That being the case... The only way to answer this is to look at what the Bible says. So that being that what we're going to do then is we're going to start in the book of Genesis. We're going to start in the book of Genesis, which begins by defining what marriage is. Are you ready? <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, by the way, I'll be reading from the English Sanctified Version. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be employing the historical grammatical method. The concept being is, is that God inspired... The basic message of the Bible is pretty easy to get. God inspired words. Those words were used in sentences and have a context. And so you use grammar. You use history. Uh, you You use verbs and nouns to basically get the gist of the message it's not it 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 really comes down to a uh, real simple thing as uh, clinton once said it all depends on what is is you know that's it's is means is it's pretty simple in genesis chapter 2 uh, we begin at verse 18 then the lord god 
said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Adam had been created, but Eve had not. I will make a make him a helper that's fit for him. And now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Uh, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay. Real simple. You want to understand at, at the core, how the Bible defines marriage, well, it goes all the way back to our first parents. Now, uh, there, there's this wonderful little trite saying that's really pithy, and that is, is that God made Adam and Eve. He didn't make Adam and Steve. And believe it or not, that actually is exactly spot on. It, it, it's kind of dorky as far as arguments go, but it's a spot on argument. And when you look at this passage, it's really clear. God defines marriage as a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife. A man uniting with a woman. The two shall become one flesh. Okay? You don't believe me? I hate to use this um, this metaphor, but it works. Just compare the plumbing. You figure out how the things hook up, and they hook up correctly. Real simple. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, and I've made this point before, Jesus Christ has no problem upsetting people's apple carts none whatsoever he said things that offended people left right and center he upset the pharisees he upset the sadducees he i mean when all was said and done he said things that upset the crowd so that you know in in john chapter six the crowd leaves him you know uh, so jesus said things that he would speak truth no matter what why because he's god in human flesh right Jesus defines marriage. As if Genesis isn't enough for you, Jesus redefines marriage for us, by the way, in Matthew chapter 19. Let me read. Uh, now, when Jesus had finished these uh, sayings, uh, verse 1, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, Jesus at this time, 
there was already the practice of homosexuality. If Jesus wanted to, he could have easily said that marriage is basically a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his um, uh, life partner. I what, what do you what what's the opposite on that one? Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> He didn't. He reiterates that marriage is between a male and a female. The two will become one flesh and that what God is the one who has joined them together and let no man separate. This is in the context of marriage and divorce. Jesus did not crack open the definition of marriage to include two males or two females. Instead, he reiterates that God is the one who established marriage who established the institution, and he designed it as male and female. That's how it works. One man and one woman married. The two become one flesh. Not one man and one man, not one man and another man, or one female and another female. Male, female. That's the way God created it. That's the way God intended it. Okay? Now, one of the terms that people use in describing homosexuals is they refer to them as sodomites. If you remember the uh, interview I did with Shirley Phelps Roper, that seemed to be her favorite um, term uh, to use uh, to reference them. Okay, that comes from Genesis chapter nineteen verses. You know, basically, we're going to start at verse one and we're going to re- keep reading all the way through verse eleven. Pay close attention because the interpretation of this passage is actually found in the New Testament, in Jude, uh, in the in the book of Jude. But we're going to read the passage itself. We're going to talk about sodomy. The two angels uh, came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And spend the night, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, "No, we will spend the night in the town square." But he pressed them strongly, so that they turned aside to him, and entered his house. And he made them a feast of baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, uh, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we might have, um, well, relations with them, if you know what I mean. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known, not had any relations with any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them as you please. That's quite a fatherly thing to do. Uh, only do not do to these men, uh, do, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse uh, with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck and they were struck with blindness, so that the men who were at the entrance of the house both both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Okay, so here's the deal. The, you know, this is really clear. Um, 
what ends up happening to Sodom and Gomorrah after this little instance? Because uh, God had said to Abraham that uh, their wickedness had come up before him and that, you know, and he was going to destroy them. And uh, what what's the example of their wickedness given in the scriptures? Well, um, uh, sodomy was the problem. Now, the the way the liberals interpret this is that this isn't a prohibition. Uh, you know, this is not an indictment against a loving homosexual relationship. This is an indictment against inhospitality. This is just not the way you treat guests. You know, you don't you don't take them outside and engage in in a in a prison like gang rape that's just not the way it, it, this is really a, the sin of inhospitality i kid you not i've listened to and read plenty of liberals to know that this is their argument however this passage itself the genesis 19 passage is also cross-referenced and interpreted in jude okay let me read to you from the book of Jude. Now, we're going to read a large section of this book. It's only a chapter long. And point something else out along the way that's kind of important. Jude, this was, by the way, written by the brother of Jesus. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, kept for, uh, for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So the occasion that Jude is writing this epistle... Is he wanted to write them, you know, encourage them in their common faith, but unfortunately, false teachers had crept into the church, and um, and people were teaching things that ought not to be taught, and uh, they had come in unnoticed, and these were people who were ungodly people who were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Okay, this is an important important thing to note here from verse four. Okay. The grace that is won for us by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross is not a license for you to go out and engage in all, any kind of sexual perversity that you want and say, hey, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. That is exactly what Jude's warning against. People who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let me continue. Now, I wanted to, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's interesting. There's that faith word again. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their pop proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now listen, here's verse 7 of Jude is, the, is taking a look and interpreting what went wrong at Sodom and Gomorrah. Here it is. Just as 
Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 7 interprets for us Genesis 19. For those liberals out there who make the claim that, oh, this is just not a proper way, this is all about inhospitality, and, and this is not how you treat guests. Well, that's kind of the understatement of the century, don't you think? Uh, but uh, a Jude, the brother of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes up the whole Sodom and Gomorrah issue, and he says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. What's that unnatural desire he's referring to? Real simple. Men lying with men. That's, you see, it's not about hospitality, it's about sexual immorality. And their destruction serves as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, these people who have come into the church, also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. That's exactly what we're seeing these, quote, progressives doing. They're relying on their own dreams. Oh, I, I believe that God's doing a new thing. Defile the flesh, reject authority, that would be God's word, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when Michael, the, the, the archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all their harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Let me read that again. In the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And that's exactly what we have in these liberals and emergents. They scoff at God's word. They scoff at biblical authority. They reject authority, turn the grace of God into a license for sens sensuality, and they follow their own ungodly passions and basically claim that God's okay with it. 
It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, they are devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now the reason I read that whole thing is because Jude was written about these liberal scoffers, these liberal rebels who are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ and following after their own sensual passions and calling it Christianity. The book of Jude warns us about them and warns them. And the book of Jude also correctly tells us what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. It was homosexuality. Now let me give you, well actually hang on a second here, I'm going to have to take a break. When we come back from the break I'm going to continue in the clear passages of Scripture and what they say regarding homosexuality. We're going to jump into Leviticus uh, 18 and 20 and more when we come back. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program or even previous programs of Fighting for the Break, uh, Fighting for the Break, Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put um, in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. 
<clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> we'll soon change your mind about that! Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. That bumper music. <sighs> See, right there, I can do the white man overbite. No, no, no. You know, with the air guitar, it's not a pretty picture. <sighs> All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital, critical, necessary, mandatory. In order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit fightingforthefaith.com. That's our website and home of the archives of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, you can find one of our friendly yellow donate buttons right there on the homepage. It allows you to send your gift in immediately, uh, online, securely. I'm, well, I'm running out of adverbs, but you get the point. Or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. We're in the middle of a discussion here on going walking our way through 
the Bible passages that talk about marriage and homosexuality. We've already established the fact that marriage is defined both in Genesis as a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife. This is the way God created it at the beginning. And this is reiterated by Jesus Christ himself, God in human flesh. Uh, Man, woman, it's pretty basic. I mean, this is real simple. This is the reason why um, going all the way back to kindergarten, they have different bathrooms uh, for guys and girls. Just to, you know, the natural way things go. You know, guy meets girl. That's the way things are supposed to work. Anyway, uh, we've uh, taken a look at Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. It is not a story about... um, in hospitality, and uh, this is proven by the fact that uh, Jude, uh, verse 7, I believe, uh, yes, Jude, verse 7, clearly tells us that <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah had, uh, they basically indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire. Hmm. Uh, no, no doubt as to what that is if you read Genesis 19, and now we're going to look at uh, two of the clearest passages. We're going to read these in context. And going to point something out here. The liberals basically claim that what's going on here in Leviticus is a prohibition against, uh, you know, uh, shrine prostitution as in, you know, in, you know, basically male homosexual prostitutes. Yet that's not what the passage says at all. Let me, and this comes back to Deloach's uh, email. Let me read Leviticus chapter 18, starting at verse 20, God giving the law to Israel. He says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. <clears throat> so that's out. Adultery has gone. You shall not give any of your children to offer to them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay, sacrificing your children to Molech. That's out. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Okay, and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean, and neither shall your woman give herself to an animal and lie with it. It's a perversion. So Deloach's argument is absolutely correct. If you're going to single out Leviticus 18.22 that prohibits, and what's funny is is that the Hebrew language here, it's it's really, it it just creates a word picture, picture for you. Uh, that basically says you shall not lie with a man, a man as as with a woman. Real simple, clean, straightforward. There's no contingencies put on this. It's the very act itself. Okay, and so in this section of Leviticus, we got uh, adultery gone, absolutely considered uh, sinful. Uh, sacrificing your children, Molech, that's gone. Uh, homosexuality defined as lying with a man as with a woman, gone. And, uh, and also bestiality, gone. It's clear. There's no contingencies. There's no other cultural context here. That's basically what he's really referring to is just, you know, uh, you know, some uh, this 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 culturally abhorrent uh, shrine prostitution. This was not a prohibition that the liberals would say. The, the, this is not a prohibition against a monogamous, committed, loving homosexual relationship. Absolutely a lie. The language is clear. Don't lie with a man as with a woman. The act itself is the thing that's forbidden. The deed, if you would. 
Leviticus chapter 20 also gives us a cross-reference to this. Let's read that, starting at verse 10. If a man commits adultery with his wife, this is talking about the, the, how uh, the nation-state of Israel under God's theocracy is to handle uh, those who transgress the laws laid out in Leviticus 18. Here we go. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It was a capital crime. <clears throat> If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Capital crime there. Two versions of adultery. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. Okay, that's another form of adultery. Out the window. Capital crime. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. The deed itself, gone. It's it's real simple. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is a depravity. He shall be, uh, be burned with fire, and there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. But you see what's going on here? You read this in context. It has no contingencies for a monogamous, loving relationship. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if uh, the man who commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor loves her. The deed itself is the thing that's punishable. And it's so clear. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. It's not just it, – it, it's it, that's God's opinion of it, not mine, not anyone else's. God's opinion of the act of homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality, lying with a man as with a woman, God calls it an abomination. Not my opinion. That's what the text says. All right, now let me give you some other passages. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, discussing how bad man has fallen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans chapter 1 is rather, uh, verse 18 is rather graphic in this sense. Why is it that people are perverting, twisting God's word? It's because uh, they, are, they want to suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Talking about their idolatry here. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, this talks about the heart here. 
the claim that's out there is, is that uh, that homosexuals were born having a desire for uh, you know for people of their own sex. That really actually doesn't matter. We are all sinful by nature, and our sinfulness manifests itself in a plethora of different ways. Uh, the sins I wrestle with are not the same sins that you wrestle with. But saying, you know, I, that's just the way I am. No, uh, no, nah, nah, it doesn't work. Okay. God gave them, sell, gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Think lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans chapter 1 is so clear. It talks about the fact that God gives them over to dishonorable passions. If you would, this is an actual punishment from God. And their men gave up natural relations with women and then were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with other men. This is not about shrine prostitution or dirty old men going to the 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 local uh, you know temple of so and so and and you know doing something with uh, you know, a, a young boy or whatever. No, this this is about men being inflamed with passion for one another. This is actually Romans chapter one is talking about men who burn with passion for another man, and they get into a relationship together. That's what it's talking about. And it says it's a shameless act. It's a dishonorable passion. And that fits perfectly with what we see in the Old Testament. Now we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy. And this will lead us into a little bit of a discussion of a particular Greek word, Arsenikoitai. We'll talk about that here in a second because the liberals have latched on to this word and, and say, oh, this can't be homosexuality. Well, actually, it, it's really simple. It is. Uh, just a cursory understanding of the Greek language will help you out with this. We read First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral... How, would, how do we know what sexual immorality is? Look at the law of God in the Old Testament. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Notice male prostitutes and homosexual offenders are each singled out. Okay, Nor male prostitutes, or nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and this is what some of you were... But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to point something out to you here. The liberals latch on to Paul's word here in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, arsenikoitai. Okay? Now, what is this word all about? They basically are making the claim, oh, that's not talking about homosexuality. It's it's a really weird word, and it shows up in other vice lists around the world and stuff like that, but it doesn't always mean homosexuality. Keep in mind, the author here is the Apostle Paul, and there's actually really good evidence uh, that the Apostle Paul was, in a way, 
coining a, ta- a, a, a word, okay? <clears throat> Listen to this. This is from an article, and I'm going to tweet this out, by the way, um, put together by uh, C. Wayne Mayhall uh, from the Christian Research Institute. Uh, is arsenicoiti really that mysterious? I'll, I'll put it out on Facebook and Twitter when I get an opportunity here. And uh, the, the word itself is not much of a mystery. Let me read this. Clinical psychologist and theologian, theologian Stanton L. Jones admits that, that white effectively invokes the mystery of arsenicoiti, the unusual word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that is common, commonly translated as homosexual sin. This, however, is not such a mystery, he argues, and its uh, unraveling reveals a more complex picture of Paul's use of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, 22, and 20, 13 forbid man lying with another man as one with, would with a woman. Leviticus was originally written in Hebrew, but Paul was a Greek-educated Jew writing to Gentiles in Greek. The common language of the day, and he probably was using the Greek translation of the Old Testament available in in that day known as the Septuagint for his scripture quotations. The Greek translation of of these Leviticus passages condemns a man lying with another man. Listen to uh, how that comes out. A man, arseno, lying with with koitai, another man, arseno. These words, excuse the pun, lie side by side in these passages in Leviticus. Paul joins these two words together into a a neologism, that's a new word, as we do in saying it, and he he condemns in 1 Corinthians uh, and 1 Timothy what was condemned in Leviticus, okay? The Greek word arsenokoitai is basically two Greek words stuck together, arsenal and koitai. Arsenal meaning man. And koitai literally mean lying with or bedding, okay? So literally, Paul here is taking the Septuagint, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, which forbids, we read, we read it in, uh, just a minute ago, a man lying with another man. The Greek word arsenokoitai literally means a man lying with another man. Get it? Arsenokoitai is literally Paul basically taking Leviticus and bringing it into Koine Greek. Quoting Leviticus chapter 18 and 20. So the... <clears throat> liberals out there who are making a big hoop de do about arsenokoitai, they're basically lying to you. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to create a new category of thinking. You know, we, we, we don't want to, we just want to create a new category where we can somehow obscure, wipe out, and erase these clear passages of scripture so that we can put our blessing on loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships. Yet, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 make it clear. The act, a man lying with another man, as with a woman, is an abomination. Paul picks up on that, and he says that neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor those men lying with other men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
plain and simple. This again is reiterated in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 1. I read in context. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, that would be arsenikoitai, men lying with other men, a direct cross-reference to Leviticus 18 and 20, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what does the clear teaching of God's word say regarding homosexuality? It is unequivocally beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you have to engage in dishonest scholarship to come up with an alternate conclusion. Homosexuality is definitively sinful and, in God's opinion, not Roseboro's, is an abomination. That being said, the Christian message to homosexuals is twofold. And it doesn't change regardless of whether the person's a homosexual or whether they're an adulterer or just some garden variety sinner. Christ said in Luke chapter 24... We are to go to all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So we have a great, fantastic, loving message to give to homosexuals. That loving message is this. Christ died for the sins of homosexuals. And he is offering them a complete pardon. Full pardon will give them his righteousness and he the call the the literally the imperative of the go, of of the gospel is repent and believe this good news turn change your mind homosexuality is not okay it's not god's fault god doesn't condone it he doesn't look favorably upon it he condemns it repent change your mind and believe the good news. The good news is that Christ forgives this sin. That's the message that Christians bring. It's not a message of hate. It's a message of good news. It's a message of the love of God towards sinful and rebellious people, whether they sin against him using heterosexual sins or homosexual sins. It doesn't matter. God loves them equally enough to die for the for both. And those liberals out there who are engaging in biblical twister and are not calling homosexuals to repent and trust the good news and believe that Christ died for the sins of homosexuality, they do not love homosexuals. They sound like they're loving and open and kind and all this kind of stuff. No, actually, they hate them because they're not telling them the truth and they're sending them to hell. They are perverting God's word, turning the grace of God into a license for their perversion, and worse, they are dividing the body of Christ. These people are a blight in the church, they are a blight. And we do not need to be embracing them. We need to be rebuking them and calling them to repentance 
and to the clear teachings of the Word of God. These are people who do not understand the gospel. They do not understand the, the message that we are called to bring. They are still in rebellion to God and think that literally Christ's death on the cross is a go out and sin like there's no tomorrow card. It's a, it's a, it's a fishing license for sin. It's it's like Tetzel's. Uh, he was he was selling indulgences. I can go out and sin because I bought an indulgence. I can go out and do whatever I want because Jesus died for my sins. I'm free to sin like there's no tomorrow. That's not the gospel. That's a satanic lie. And so the message that we bring is a message of love to homosexuals. The good news that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Therefore, repent and believe this good news. That's the Christian gospel. The texts clearly say it. And those liberals out there, under their liberal scholarship that are obscuring the word of God, are sending people to hell. And our prayer is not that they go to hell but that we boldly proclaim the truth and God would grant them repentance. Because we are not more moral than homosexuals. We're not. Every single one of us is laid waste by the law of God. It's the great equalizer. We are all condemned equally as sinners. Each and every one of us deserves God's Wrath and eternal punishment. Not one of us in our self-righteousness is going to be able to stand before God. And he's going to say, yeah, you're a pretty good person. I think I'll let you in. No. So we don't have to point a bony finger as if we're more righteous. We're not. We are all sinners. We are all beggars pointing to where the meal is. And the meal is Jesus Christ. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, I'm going to read a quick uh, news story, and uh, and then we're going to, uh, actually, probably two, and then we're going to dive into our sermon review here today. Our sermon review is from uh, Carrie Shook, and it's entitled Gourmet, the, uh, the Biblical Recipe to Make Women Feel Valued and Loved. Sounds like a great one, doesn't it? Anyway, I think you all already know what I think about these seeker-driven, um, Bible-light, uh, gospel-less, Christless sermons. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Faster. It be too late to alter course, mateys. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. 
that be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, hour number two straight ahead here at Fighting for the Faith. Got a couple of uh, news stories we need to uh, review. Again, today's uh, topic is dedicated to the biblical view of marriage and homosexuality. So everything relates one way or another to that particular topic. I should reiterate my warning. This program is not politically correct. I'm not interested in getting along with liberals. I'm interested in smashing their arguments and taking them captive and making them obedient to Christ. Yeah, I know. It just doesn't fly well with certain women. Oh, tough. All right. Um, That being the case, we're going to dive into... uh, We've got to do our news music before we get to the news. So what does that mean? Uh, i got to find my news music here. There it is. Here we go. From the Telegraph in the UK, Archbishop of Canterbury foresees two-track church to avoid gay schism. Now, remember what we read there in the uh, Book of Jude—that these are the people, these scoffers, these those people who are rebellious against God's word. Uh, they are the ones who are the dividers. In fact, it's not people who say, "Hey, wait a second." We need to stick to what the scripture says and what the church has taught all along. Th- those aren't the ones who are causing the division. It's the rebels. Oh, that's a nice term. Sounds like a, I sound like Shirley Phelps Roper. Tough. It's a good word. <laughs> these the, the, In the church, these people are rebels against the authority of God's word. They are the scoffers. They are the ones who are causing the split. So here the Archbishop of Canterbury foresees a two-track church in order to to avoid a gay schism. <clears throat> I wonder if he even really understands what he's talking about. Dr. Rowan Williams, we call him Captain Obvious here at Fighting for the Faith. The Archbishop of Canterbury has admitted that the Anglican Communion may divide into a two-track church due to deep divisions over ordination of homosexual clergy. He's trying to avoid a schism, and the way to do it is to have a two-track church? Isn't that already a schism? 
you know, what a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. But we read Dr. War, uh, <laughs> Dr. Williams acknowledged for the first time that believers may have to accept two styles of being Anglican in order to avoid schism. <laughs> two styles? So homosexuality is a style. Having a homosexual, somebody who's rebelling against God's word, who is openly uh, uh, unrepentant sinner and making turning Christ's death on the cross as a license for sin, that's a style? I don't think so. <sighs> anyway, uh, two styles of being Anglican in order to avoid schism. The decision of the Episcopal bishops in the U.S. earlier this month to press ahead with the ordination of homosexual priests and bishops, effectively overturning a ban on the practice has pushed the 80 million strong global church to the brink of an irrevocable split. Yeah. Traditionalists in the U S and Canada have already formed a rival province to the Episcopal church to resist against the liberal tide. Dr. Williams appeared to accept that his efforts to, uh, uh, preserve the unity of the communion have failed as he sketched a new Anglican structure that would allow local churches to loosen their ties with the main church body. This has been called the two-tier model, or more disparagingly, a first and second class structure. But perhaps we are faced rather with a possibility of a two-track model, uh, two ways of witnessing to the Anglican heritage, he wrote. Anglican heritage. What is that? And how is it that that's more important than being basically bending the knee to God's word? I am just it, weird. Quote, it helps to be clear about these possible futures, however much we think them less than ideal, and to speak about them in, not in apocalyptic terms of schism and excommunication, which is exactly what you really need to be doing with Catherine Jefferts Shorey, but plainly is what they are, two styles of being Anglican. You've got to be kidding me. I, again, I just I reiterate the point. Since when is a, an openly unrepentant, rebellious sinner who's basically thumbing his nose at God from the pulpit a, quote, a valid style of being an Anglican? Just asking the question. The two tracks of the church would maintain close relations where they shared common ground, but would be free to follow their own consciences on issues like homosexuality with greater integrity and consistency. This doesn't mean it. These are words that mean nothing. Quote, it, it, it should not be said that a competitive hostility between the two would be one of the worst possible outcomes and needs to be clearly repudiated. Competitive hostility. The liberals are competitively, aggressively hostile to the word of God. Oh, never mind. Dr. Williams has previously championed the creation of an Anglican covenant that would set down the rules of continued membership of the denomination. In the article, Communion, Covenant, and Our Anglican Future, published on his official website, that's the Archbishop of Canterbury.org, he indicated that any liberal churches which declined the invitation to covenant would effectively shed their formal obligations to the Anglican hierarchy. But they left door, uh, he left the door open to conservative provinces within these churches opting to stay with the mainstream communion. It's important that there should be a clear answer to this question, he wrote. Dr. William used the piece to reiterate that the Anglican 
significant objections to gay clergy and same-sex blessing, which were also approved by the Episcopal Church, were based on Scripture rather than prejudice. <sighs> yep, that's right. They are based on Scripture, not prejudice. Which is all the more reason why those who refuse to bend the knee to God's word should be excommunicated. What happened to church discipline? Ay, ay, ay. Okay, down, this one's a little bit bizarre, too. Uh, conservatives blast the Church of England's uh, two-for special. I, I call it the two-for special. It's a wedding and baptism uh, two, uh, two-for uh, conservatives. Have, this is from the Christian Post, by the way, uh, written by uh, uh, Greta Curtis, who is uh, their British correspondent. Conservatives have lambasted the Church of England's proposal of offering couples a two-for-one service. Marriage for them and baptisms for their children born outside of marriage, saying it confuses the church's message. You know what? I think this would be a great thing if they would throw in a free car wash. <sighs> the Church of England on Thursday announced the new church guideline, which allows couples to baptize their children after the wedding ceremony. Parents can even get baptized themselves. Hey, let's get a jacuzzi and some bath toys, too, while we're at it. The church said it's recognizing the changing reality of British families after research commissioned by the church leveled the, uh, revealed that 44% of children in Britain are born un, uh, to unmarried women and that one in five couples seeking a church wedding already had children either together or from a previous relationship. The Rev. Reverend Tim Sledge, vicar of Romsey in the Diocese of Winchester, said that he had been asked to merge wedding and baptism services several times. It's, quote, it has been lovely to give couples this flexibility to enjoy an extra special celebration for the whole family, he commented. I wonder if they have uh, um, a petting zoo, too. Uh, now the quote. Now the guidelines are, avail are available online. The church can say yes and and offer even an even warmer wedding welcome to couples with children. Uh, Stephen Parkinson of the Anglo-Catholic group Forward in the Faith told the Times, however, that the proper place for a baptism is not during a wedding, but during the Sunday morning act of worship when the congregation can welcome the new Christian. Quote, it's a shame that we should be a, it, what should be a bride's day now stands to be hijacked by screaming kids. That's a pretty lame argument. <laughs> Does God's word have anything to do? So let me see if I got this right. The Church of England is offering a twofer special. For those uh, people who are looking for a church home uh, that are uh, that are just happen to be un unmarried, you know, having children out of wedlock... They basically are allowing them to come clean and get married, and as a two-for special, they'll combine with that a baptismal service for their illegitimate children. Hey, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to blow a gasket. I just this, this is crazy. What <laughs> the whole world has gone nuts? Ha. <laughs> Defending the dual service, Stephen Platten, Bishop of Wakefield and chairman of the liturgical commission, which drew up the service, said, This does not mean the church is changing its teaching. This is a way for the church to reinforce its commitment to marriage. Is the commitment to marriage or is it the commitment to Jesus Christ? What's missing from this? The thing that's missing is the clear proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
Oh, we're committed to marriage. See, we're going to have a, we're going to, we'll, we're, we're, see, we're getting ill. We're getting people who are shacking up to get married. See, that's the important thing. No, it's not. Is the reason that they're getting married married because they've been told in no uncertain terms that what they're doing is sinful before God and that they literally are in danger of the wrath of God and the fires of hell and that they need to repent and believe in the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and good news is that Christ even now will forgive them for their for their fornication and their fornal cabootilating and that the re- and, and is is there is there reason they're getting married because they're repentant and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and and their lives have been transformed is that the reason a commitment to marriage i think that's kind of seeing uh, missing the forest cuz of the tree if you know what i mean oh man but that's okay your kids can get bathed while you know at the at the wedding let me see. Critics say the new guideline confuses the church's message and appears to sanction having children out of wedlock. I, I think that the whole thing is completely confused and just, just well-meaning and pathetic. Quote, it's a pity that they've, uh, they've not put in a funeral for grandma as well. <laughs> Clip the Bishop of Fulham, uh, the right Reverend John <laughs> Broadhurst. <laughs> That'd be a threefer. That's right. You, you come and get married, get your kids baptized, and we'll even bury grandma. <laughs> Quote, it seems trendy and it reveals a complete lack of awareness of the reality of what goes on in the parishes, he told the Times. David Phillips, general secretary of the, uh, the church society, stressed the proper place for sex is within marriage. Why? Again, we've completely lost the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. As a result of it, all kinds of looniness. (laughs) The two for special. Oh, man. Okay, we... (laughs) I am sorry. The whole... I just... If you don't laugh, you're gonna cry. I mean, that's literally where we're at right now. We've We've got an entire church... It's worldwide. It's not just in the United States. It's all over the world. The it, the whole church has completely gone crazy and mad. Uh, what's what's at the heart of this? Complete biblical illiteracy. We're awash with Bibles, and nobody seems to know anything about it. <sighs> we don't even know what the message is anymore. Man, oh man. All right, we're going to switch gears now and get into our sermon review. That means it's time for, that's right, sermon review, music, the good, the bad, the ugly. We do it all here. Yesterday, we did a good sermon. It need a little more salt, but it was definitely a good sermon. That was from Paul Washer. Today, since we're doing an entire program based on marriage and what the Bible says about it and the topic of homosexuality, I'd throw in a throw in a feel-good, seeker-driven message about marriage. From Carrie Shook, Fellowship of the Woodlands, Houston, Texas. The sermon is called Gourmet. That's right, Cooking with Carrie. The biblical recipe to make women feel valued and loved. 
also known as the seeker-driven recipe to make men shake and quiver and absolutely squirm in their seats while sitting in church. As noted before, Carrie Shook is the person who took a manly sermon topic. That would be a sermon based roughly on the uh, James Bond movies and um, took all the testosterone out of it and replaced it with nothing but pure pink estrogen. (sighs) I think Carrie Shook is a prime example of why most men don't like going to church. Anyway, we'll stop there. But uh, without any further ado, let's dive into our sermon today. Uh, here is uh, here's the opening intro music for uh, from Carrie Shook Ministries. Well, it may not be every day with Rachel Ray, but it's every day with Pastor K. I know it's not quite the same thing. Oh man! But we're still cooking up a recipe. You can't see it, but they've got a full blown kitchen right there on stage. This, by the way, stage is the right word here. Um. Uh, <clears throat> He's cooking for relating. And today we're going gourmet as I'm going to try to tackle a much more complicated recipe. Braised beef tenderloin with mushroom peppercorn reduction. So difficult I can barely say it. But more importantly, I'm going to tackle a much more complex subject. What women wish men understood about them. I'm definitely no expert on the subject. So I commissioned some of our pastors this week to do a survey. All right, just got to ask the obvious question. Um, Where's this found in the Bible? I mean, this is definitely a a topic of interest to me. I mean, as a man, a married man, but uh, the question comes in. uh, Carrie, isn't your job um, to, you know, preach the word in season, out of season? Isn't your job to open up God's word and tell us what it says? I mean, I could get this from Oprah, I can get it from Dr. Phil, any of the daytime talk shows, they cover this pretty much regularly. Why are you doing this in church? To talk to their wives, ladies on our staff team, friends, and ask them the question, what do you want men to understand about you? And we've got some great answers with some common themes. And then I turned to God's cookbook, the Bible, to discover how God created women. And what I really want to teach you today, men, is how God has a recipe for you to win the heart of your woman. So we're going to go ahead and start cooking because I've already put in here some garlic, not too much garlic, and a little bit of olive oil. Garlic and olive oil are good for you. So we'll put in the beef tenderloin. And I know that um, for some of you guys... That I could just flip it over one time and it would be done, right? But that's not the way it is for the ladies, so I'm going to cook it a little bit longer. In fact, uh, how would you guys, ladies, how would you ladies like your beef tenderloin done? Let me. Uh, I need to remind everybody, this is supposed to be the sermon from a church. Not hearing any sermonizing going on. Let me know. How would you like it? Yeah, that's right. Rare, well done. Yeah, I got all kinds of answers out here. That proves my point of how complicated they are, guys. 
Well, somehow I'm going to cook a rare, well-done, medium and medium-well steak all at the same time. Now, really the key to this beef tenderloin is the cooking sherry, and there's no scientific method for how much cooking sherry to use. It all just depends on what kind of week you've had. That's my theory on it. If you had a tough week, then you're going to want to use a little more cooking sherry, and you want to really, whoo, yeah, catch it on fire. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay. Turn it down a little bit. Mm. Smells pretty good, doesn't it? Okay. I'm going to pick out some couple that looks like they need some romance, and I'm going to help you out. Okay, the next thing I'm going to do is add in some mushrooms that I've picked from the high country. And we're going to put that in. That's good stuff. Yeah. A few peppercorns there. Uh, this is making me hungry. Uh, uh, Carrie, um, Bible, you've, you've heard of it? Preach the word? Mm. Mm, yeah. It's about medium rare right now. We'll keep cooking it. Now, I want to also add the reduction. And this is a secret recipe that I can't give you. It's real nice. I don't want to add too much because this is the fattening stuff. Just a little bit there. Give it a little more flavor. Mix it around. Okay. Does it look pretty good? Yeah. Three minutes, 47 seconds into the, quote, sermon. Nothing substantive uh, yet, even as far as conversation is concerned. We continue. Okay. Now I'm about medium, I think, on the steak, and that's good. Yeah. Okay. Now presentation is the key, so I want to have a good presentation. I think the ladies really care about that. So I think that's about right. Okay. So first we'll put the steak down. Yeah, looks good. And then what I want to do is just put just a few mushrooms around, make it look really good. Yeah. Yeah, this is actually the sermon that went out on their podcast. Four minutes, 27 seconds. Nothing so far. Nothing except for sizzling food. Yeah, how about that? Very careful in the presentation. <laughs> oh, what the heck? Who cares, you know? That's the way I would like it. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, now it needs a little color. So I put a little, bam. Put a little color in there. Bam. Okay. There we go. Now that looks good. Well, it's going to taste. What we have here is a pastor impersonating a uh, television, daytime television talk show host. They're not in church. They are in the um, Carrie Shook studio. Tastes good, I can tell you that. We'll put this over here, and I'll put some foil over it, and some very fortunate couple will have a romantic meal a little later on. And then we're going to cook some creme brulee in just a minute. But let's get into the serious stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Can't wait to hear the serious stuff. I'm... Sure, it'll be a fine expositional sermon on uh, 
Christ and him crucified for our sins and all the things that he has done for us, you know, worshiping, praising our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm asking too much. I want you to look at our first verse right here in Song of Songs 2-4. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Now, this wife is describing a gourmet relationship where she's experiencing a banquet of blessings because this guy gets it. He knows how to meet her deepest needs. And the first thing women want men to understand about them is the way to win my heart is to engage my emotions. You got all of that from that little verse in Song of Solomon. He takes me to the banquet table, and that translates as, oh, man. And <sighs> said the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, but the way to win a woman's heart is to engage her emotions. From what I heard from women this week, and from what I've read from God's Word, God created a woman to long to be in relationship with a man who's capable of relating to her on a deep emotional level. Emotional engagement. Do I need a crucified uh, Lord and Savior uh, to figure this out? Is is this really the the deep burning issue that the scriptures are addressing i mean seriously no offense to you women out there listening i i do understand as a married man you know i got to connect with my wife emotionally been there done it do it thanks it's crucial for her stephen arterburn and fred stoker in their book every man's marriage says a wife's deepest desire is oneness, emotional engagement, while the man desires peace in the marriage relationship. And this creates some conflict. One woman described it this way. My husband and I have been married for 32 years. Do you know what happened Tuesday night? He said to me, Pam, I love you more than I ever have. I don't think I've ever been closer our whole lives together. He really meant it too. Do you know what I thought when he said it? You're crazy. You don't even know me. See, this husband had peace in the marriage, but no oneness. Now, how could he say, I'm closer to you than I've ever been before, and his wife is miserable? Well, it was because they were just coming out of being in debt. They're almost debt-free. Their house was almost paid off. He was in a job that was very fulfilling as it led to retirement. The kids were grown. The last child was out of the house, and he felt a lot of peace. But there was no oneness. She was miserable. And we see this all the time, how the man is pretty happy as things are going along pretty smooth in the marriage relationship, but she has no emotional oneness at all. Again, um, why do I need my pastor to give me this information? I could get this from Barnes & Noble. Just I, I read a lot of books. I could get this from daytime television. But the one thing I can't get from the world... Is true Christian doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. I could get this stuff anywhere. I mean, don't they sell this in those stupid, like, you know, women's magazines? I mean, every single article is about stuff like this, isn't it? You know, when I'm passing through the, the checkout line at Walmart at the grocery store, I mean... The, the, I can get this from there. But I can't get Christian doctrine anywhere else. So 
here these people are sitting in a, quote, church service, getting stuff that they can get on daytime television, reading a book, uh, you know, at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you know, they could get it uh, from the checkout stand at Walmart. But the one thing they can't get in the world is the one thing he's not giving them. Oh, boy. So she's not happy at all. Now, I know some of you guys, when I talk about emotional engagement, are saying, I don't have a clue what emotional engagement is. And he- yeah, in fact, I'm pretty much ready to crawl out of my seat right now. Every time I review one of these guys' ser- sermons, I, you know, my blood starts to boil uh, because it is the most unmanly stuff. Oh. And even if I did know, I don't think I'm capable of giving it because I'm not a very emotional guy. And I would agree, I'm not a very emotional person. But you don't have to be an emotional person to really touch your wife's soul, to really connect her on a deep emotional level. You just have to practice some principles that really help you touch her emotions. And the first one is... All I have to do is practice some principles and I can touch her emotions. Oh, man. that That's pretty trite. You, you try... <laughs> Try that one out, guys. You know, next time you're having, say, a rough patch in your marriage, you take your wife out to dinner to, you know, to discuss things and, you know, try to see if you can get things worked out. And, you're, and, you, and, you, and you let your wife speak candidly about what she perceives are the issues in the relationship. And you say, you know what, honey, I understand you're just not being fulfilled. But the good news is all I've got to do is practice some principles and it'll just patch this right up. If I said something like that, my wife would probably punch me in the face. As listen, listen, not just hearing, listen. James 1.19 says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Yeah, because the, the epistle of James is all about my, is the, the principles I need to apply to connect with my wife emotionally. Not at all. Why don't you read the book in context and actually tell us what it really teaches. Listening is the beginning of emotional engagement. But the problem is, I think I'm listening to my wife, but I'm not. I'm just hearing words. I'm not really listening to her heart. I'm not really feeling for her. Now, some of you know a couple of weeks ago, I stood up here and said, my wife will be joining me in a couple of weeks to do the message what women want men to understand about them. And I announced that in all the services, and my wife, Chris, came to the last service, and as I walked off after the last service and and met her, she said, Carrie, that's so exciting that we're going to be doing the message what women want men to understand about them in a couple of weeks, but that's going to be very difficult for me to do that message while I'm in Nashville with our son Josh at his college preview day, like I told you about over and over again. But good luck with that. As you tell everyone what a woman wants. So I'm up here today. Doesn't that disqualify you then from even preaching on this topic? Just a question. Teaching you how to listen to your wife. And I stand here all alone. Because I need to listen. Now, fortunately, she accepts me just the way I am, and she loves me, and she helped me with the message this week so I would have something to say that was knowledgeable on the subject. And then she called me before I came out, and she said, Carrie, I'm praying for you. It's going to be great, but it's your fault. (laughs) 
Need to learn to listen. Listen. Sometimes I'm just hearing words, but I'm not really engaged emotionally. Well, not only should I listen, but secondly, I should also learn. I should learn. It's so important to really study your wife and learn. And and one of the things about learning is learning what conversation is all about. Because I, I heard the theme from so many wives this week. They said, I wish my husband really understood that when I'm engaging him in conversation and I'm sharing a problem that I'm going through, he doesn't have to fix the problem. But usually he goes right into fix it mode and he tries to solve the problem. All I want him to do is really just listen to me and feel for me and empathize with me and try to understand me. I don't want him to fix my problems. Uh, what book of the Bible is this taught in, by the way? Again, this is probably good advice. I'm sure that this will help somebody somewhere with their marriage. But uh, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. I just want him to understand and empathize. You see, conversation to a woman is very different from conversation to a man. Husbands, conversation to your wife is like a journey. She's taking you on a journey, so just pack your bags and let her take the conversation wherever she wants it to go. It may not be the most logical journey. Uh, Is that in the Proverbs? It may not be the quickest journey from point A to point B, but if you'll see it that way, it'll be a fabulous journey. You don't have to solve all her problems. You need to study her and learn what her needs are and empathize with her. That's what she wants you to do. But some men are afraid to give their wife permission to talk until they're done because they think the end will never come. But it will. Just allow her to share her heart and empathize with her. And be understanding. It takes all the pressure off. You don't have to fix all the... I know. This is in the Epistle of Venus. That's... It's not in the Bible. The problems, you just have to be understanding. I want to challenge you. Study your wife like you would a new project at work. I want to challenge you, husband. Study her like a new hobby you would take on. Really learn what makes her tick, what her desires are, what her needs are, what she loves. Really study. What about you studying what it is that the bride of Christ needs? You know, Christ and Him crucified, God's Word... You know, that little metaphor works. You haven't really seemed to study what it is that the bride of Christ needs there, Pastor. Oh, man. Look out, Oprah. Here comes Carrie Shook. Study her. And some of you have been married a long time and you think, I already know all about my wife. But have you checked in over... You know, if Carrie were to put out a magazine, rather than it being named Oprah, you know, or, oh, that's Oprah's magazines, his would be named Estro. I'm just saying the last 10 or 20 years. Things may have changed a little bit. Study her. Start from scratch and study her. Because the more you learn about her, the more accepting you'll be. Learning always leads to acceptance. And there's no emotional engagement in a relationship. Even the tone of his voice is just grating on me. I, you're, I think you're li- literally listening to me being wound up. I am about ready to shoot off like a bottle rocket. Unless it's covered in an atmosphere of acceptance where she feels totally and unconditionally loved, completely accepted in your love. 
And that can only happen if you learn about her and you learn how to meet her needs and you learn what she wants and what she desires and what her dreams are. It provides acceptance. In Romans 15, 7, it says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And uh, the book of Romans, which you're just completely quoting out of context there, is all about relationships. And it's just chock full of advice on how I can learn how to listen and learn about my wife. Oh, man. The more you learn about her, the more you'll accept her. Well, a woman wants a man to know the way to win my heart is to engage my emotions. You don't have to be an emotional man. All you have to do is practice these principles of listening and <sighs> All you got to do is practice these principles. It's just a snap. It's so easy. Learning and really understanding her or attempting to understand her. And then secondly, a woman wants a man to know that my greatest struggle is seeing my true beauty. My greatest struggle is seeing my true beauty. Our society constantly bombards women with the message that unless you look a certain way, you're not beautiful. That unless you look like an airbrushed, stick-thin supermodel on the cover of a magazine, you're not beautiful. And the consequences have been devastating to the self-esteem of women and young girls. And it is so important, men, for you to understand that you're to be the one to reassure her of her true beauty. To acknowledge the truth from God's Word that He's created her so beautiful. And what I'm going to share with you next is so important, man, to help your wife feel beautiful. Look at Proverbs 5.19. Well, at least we got something grounded in the Scripture here. Just practice these principles, though. It'll just, it's a snap. It's so easy. May you ever be captivated by her love. Underline the word captivated. One of her greatest desires. You know, you could read the whole passage. It would really help. That, is that she feels like you're captivated by her, that she's captivating to you. She wants to feel captivating to you. She wants to... How is it that, I, you know, I, I made this point earlier. I have to make it again. If you were to take the verses uh, from these seeker-driven guys and, you know, that and what they preach on, how long would it take if you took the top 100 seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches out there in the, in the United States and tallied up the verses that they preach on, how long before you can reconstruct the entire New Testament or the entire Bible from their preaching? I will bet you, if somebody were to do the statistical analysis on it, you would never be able to completely finish the Bible. These guys never teach the Bible. They teach sentence fragments. And they call that a, quote, biblical principle. To know that she is, that she's beautiful in your eyes. Now, this is more than feelings because feelings come and go. There'll be some times where you don't feel captivated by your wife, where you're not enthralled by her beauty. But it's not about feelings. It's about truth. And it comes from your heart. It's these actions that come from your heart. She needs constant reassurance of her true beauty. That's why she's constantly asking you, how does this dress look? Okay, imagine if you would that you're a unbeliever. You do not trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You have not repented. 
and you walk into this church because you want to know more about God, you're going to leave there basically thinking, you know, hey, I guess one of the things that uh, makes me a godly person is if I uh, you know, practice these really simple principles about, you know, connecting with my wife emotionally. That I can be pleasing to God if I did that. And boy, if that's what you came away with, you would be woefully mistaken. Do you like my new hairstyle? Does this make me look fat? And all those things that she's constantly asking you, she's saying, reassure me, reassure me that I'm captivating to you. Reassure me of my true beauty because every woman wants to feel like a princess. But on the inside, they struggle with feeling like an ugly duckling. And their self-esteem is being chipped away constantly by our society that says, you've got to look a certain way to be beautiful. Look at Song of Songs 4.9. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. I don't know one wife who wouldn't want their husband to say that about them and mean it. Now, some wives would faint, but I don't know one wife who wouldn't love for their husband to really mean that. This guy gets it. He's affirming her and reassuring her with his words. You can't tell your wife enough how beautiful and how wonderful and how treasured they are to you. How captivating they are. Those words are so important. Constant reassurance to build up her self-esteem. To appreciate her and to appreciate just means to raise her value. And you appreciate her constantly. But then I would say two ladies, rest. Rest in God's approval of you. Because ultimately, you'll never find complete acceptance in a man, in a human being. They'll always let you down because... Is this the gospel nugget coming in? He may have telegraphed the arrival of the gospel nugget. We're, we're hoping here. We're not perfect. No human being can make you feel completely loved and accepted. Those are needs that only God can meet. So rest in God's approval of you. Rest in what God says about you. He says you're so beautiful and treasured and so captivating that he came to this earth to die for you. Here it is. All right. Not a lot of context here because have we discussed sin at all? Do we have any concept of the holiness of God? Any concept of the demands of the law, what it means to be holy, what it means to be sinful, what it means to be righteous and unrighteous. No discussion of this. Just, you know, he's just speaking affirming words. He loves you so much. He thinks of you as a princess. He loves you so much he came and died for you. This is something gospel-ish, but no concept of repentance, no concept of the forgiveness of sins, because he hasn't really told us what that is. Let's continue. That you're worth dying for and that you're beautiful in his eyes. That's the truth. Believe the truth and rest in the truth of how God sees you and look into the eyes of Jesus Christ and you'll see reflected back to you your true beauty. So what do you see when you see Jesus Christ? You see your true beauty. Gospel nugget. Hang on, i got to calculate here. That was pretty quick, although not as quick as uh, the other day. Hold on a second here. Divided by 6, multiply it by 37, carry the 1.2. Okay, that came in at uh, at Mach 3.4. Okay, so Gospel Nugget flew in and flew out at Mach 
3.4, and it wasn't even a very good gospel nugget because at the end of it, you look into the eyes of Jesus and you see your beauty reflected back to you. Yeah. Don't listen to what everyone else says. Look to Jesus Christ and find your ultimate acceptance in Him. Find your ultimate beauty in Him. Just rest. Well, there's a third thing I think women want men to understand about them. My greatest need is to feel loved. From talking to many women this week and seeing God's Word on how He wired women, I would say a woman's greatest need is to feel loved, and that's why... Could you discuss any of those passages that discuss how God wired women? I mean, here you're talking about, you know, uh, this gourmet cooking thing about a uh, biblical recipe to make women feel valued and loved. Think you could share some of those passages that discuss how God wired women? Any of them? God gives this charge to men in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the Bible could have stopped with husbands, love your wives. But the problem is husbands would have said, I got that down. I love my wife. But it goes on to define love. It says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? He gave his life for the church. Okay, we got another, we got another gospel crumb here, another gospel nugget coming in. Okay, again, can we, why did Christ die for us, um, Carrie? Why do I need that? Is Jesus just saying, I love you so much I could die? Uh, can you give me some explanation as to what that means? And then he goes on to set the example for love. So he died on the cross. And he provided the example for us to look at. So when I look at Christ on the cross, I see the type of love I'm to have for my wife. Uh, please explain this. The type of love that lays down my life each and every day to meet her needs before my own. I've never once met a wife who had a problem with her husband being the spiritual leader of their home. Whose husband was really laying down his life for her every day looking to meet her needs first. But I've met many wives who struggle. Notice that we've turned the gospel into something I have to do now. There's a level on which he's right, but he's completely missed a very important ingredient. The whole explanation of our sinfulness, our lostness, our hopelessness, our helplessness, Christ's sacrificial love for us has a context and that then carries out in our love for our neighbor, including our wife as our neighbor. <sighs> Man. With allowing their husband to be the spiritual leader of the home because the husband wasn't laying down his life and loving his wife like Christ loved the church. And when the husband is seeking to meet his wife's needs over his own, then that provides harmony in a team in a marriage relationship. And that's why God charges husbands to do that. Because her greatest need is to feel loved. So how do I make her feel loved? First, affection. Affection is non-sexual touch. We hear it all the time in counseling. The only time he touches me is when he wants sex. And if that's the case, I'm not interested. Non-sexual touch is so important. Holding hands, hugs, cards, flowers, all the romance that makes her feel loved. Affection, meeting her needs before your own. And then action. She also wants a husband to take initiative. 
I heard it from one wife this week who said, I don't feel loved when I have to tell my husband to do something over and over and over again that's important to me, and then he finally does it, then it doesn't count. I just don't feel loved. But I feel loved when he does something that he knows really meets my needs, and I don't even ask him to do it. He just does it and takes initiative. Then I really feel loved. That's because I believe God created a woman to long to be in relationship with a man who enters his world with confidence and strength and takes action and fights for his family and takes initiative. She wants an action hero who's strong and confident. If you want to win the heart of your woman, then you need to be strong and confident and take initiative and take action. Some of you are going to wait a minute, Carrie. I thought you said to win the heart of my woman, I needed to engage emotionally and be tender and compassionate and listen and care and empathize. And now you're saying to win her heart, I need to be strong and take action, be an action hero. Which is it? It's both. They want it both ways. And what passages are you finding this in? The Bible? Again... There are people who are coming to your church, Carrie, who need to know about Christ, really what he's done for them. You've mentioned Christ's death on the cross twice, really quickly, in passing. No real context for it, not really proclaiming the gospel, not talking about our sin, our need for a Savior, not even giving us clear biblical doctrine here. This is a uh, a relationship sermon that basically contains data that I could get in a multiple, multiple different sources. But I can't hear the gospel outside in the world. How come you're not really preaching the gospel? And that's why we men say they're complicated, but they're really not. They're complex. And that brings me to the fourth thing. My complexities come from my Creator. Every woman wants a man to understand that her complexities come from her creator. Now, we're going to do something pretty complex right now. We're going to make a dessert, creme brulee. In Texas, we call it cream brulee. But <laughs> the hard part has already been done for me, and it's very complex, and that's tempering the eggs with the cream. And you have to temper them in very slowly as you heat up um, the cream. And mixing the eggs in. And we put the recipe on the back of your sermon notes. So some of you guys, you really ought to try this. To impress your gal is to make creme brulee. And then the other thing that's important is using real vanilla beans. And that's why I have to strain it because we've used the real thing, the real vanilla beans. I'm going crazy. Just, oh man. Beans and the holes would get into the cream if you didn't strain it. So we strain the cream. And then we take the cream and put them into the custard cups. These custard cups will make four. Uh, Carrie, um, Bible, any? Uh, and this is the low-fat creme brulee. You know, it's the real thing, pure cream with real vanilla beans. Another key to it is you've got to cook it in a water bath. And this keeps the cream from curdling. This is a complex... Unfortunately, the, this is not going to keep me from curdling. I'm curdling as we speak. Dessert. And then you put it in the oven. Okay. 
Here we go. And fortunately, we already have one made, just like on the cooking shows. So. Yeah, that's because he really missed his calling. He should have been a daytime television talk show host. And it turned out real nicely. Another secret to it is not to put too much sugar on the top. If you put too much, then it'll it'll really burn. Yeah, thank that. Just a light sprinkling of brown sugar, white sugar on top. And then the only thing about this whole meal that's fun for me, fun for guys, torch it up a little bit. Kind of like roasting marshmallows. And brown it. And then it always catches fire. I feel myself growing closer to God by the second here. There. Burnt cream. A little creme brulee. Oh, it's nice. Very nice. Put it right over here. In fact, who would like this wonderful meal? Um, creme brulee. Some creme brulee? Would you like some creme brulee? Yeah. You know, after listening to this sermon, I feel like I need to go into the woods and shoot a small animal. Yeah, sure thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that gr- got to go into the woods and do something manly. <sighs> Great. Maybe go fishing and gut a fish or something. Great. Yeah. Come to church. You never know what will happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know what won't happen is you won't actually teach the Bible. Not as boring as you thought it was, is it? Yeah, that's good. Okay, now who needs some romantic help? This is good stuff here. Yes, right? He needs romantic help, so he's going to eat this in front of his wife. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Well, let's get into the important stuff. Look at this. You've got a minute left with the sermon. You're going to finally get into the important stuff. I can't wait to hear what that is. This verse in Genesis one twenty-seven. A single verse. Possibly a sentence fragment. Here we go. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Underline image of God. Man was created to reflect the image of God. And a wife longs to be in a relationship with a man who reflects the image of the very God who created her. And how do we reflect that image as sinful human beings who have fallen? Just asking, you know, because you haven't really given me any real advice on how I can truly reflect the image of God. And not with your sentence fragment so-called biblical principles that I just need to apply that'll make it so easy for me to connect emotionally with my wife. That's why she wants it both ways, guys. She wants you to be tough and she wants you to be tender because that's the way her creator is. God is tough and strong and all-powerful, and yet he's tender and compassionate and loving and caring and cares about every detail of our lives. She wants it both ways, and we say she's complicated, but she's really complex because she wants her man to reflect the image of the God she serves. She wants her man to provide security and yet risk. And some of you men have built great businesses or big uh, bank accounts. You've done great things in business, but I challenge you to build the kingdom of God. I challenge you to use your time. time. Uh, how again do we do that again? You haven't explained any of that in this so-called sermon. Talent and treasure to do something that will outlast you, that will make a difference in the world. Uh, make a difference in the world. R- yeah, that's what the whole purpose of Christianity is. For. Tell you, go and make a difference in the world. 
Hitler made a difference. Because if you do that, you will have a wife who's proud of you. I'm beginning to think, okay, in the the bottom of my list of least liked pastors that we review sermons here, Joel Osteen is definitely my least favorite sermon, uh, guy to review sermons. Carrie Shook, close second. Absolutely a close second. He is the exa- this is the reason why men don't like going to church. It's Carrie Shook and pastors like this and sermons like that. Oh man, I'm telling you, I'm going to have to go visit the woods and do some manly things in the woods and maybe get a splinter or cut myself. Go catch a fish and gut it, or you know, take my rifles out and kill Bambi or something just to get this out of my system. I'm telling you. <sighs> Christless, you know, Jesus made a very brief cameo appearance twice. The uh, the gospel nuggets came in at Mach three point four and Mach two point six. Did the calculations on the second one? No context whatsoever. It, this ay 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 ay. And you wonder why the church is so biblically illiterate. Yeah, the folks there at Fellowship of the Wood, Woodlands, they're going to be able to. You know, stand on God's word against the deceptions of the devil? No problemo. As long as uh, the devil's not trying to deceive them into thinking that their wives aren't emotionally uh, and don't need to connect with them emotionally. (sighs) You've got to be kidding me. (sighs) Folks, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. You open up the Bible. And you read it. And you exegete it. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there was more Bible in the first half hour of fighting for their faith than there there was in this entire sermon. Probably an entire month or two's worth of sermons from Kerry Shook. And yet, he's the one who's a pastor. And this is exactly... The reason why he does it this way is this this is seeker-driven, purpose-driven methodology in practice. You get out, you get rid of expository Bible preaching, you get rid of sound Christian doctrine, and you meet people's felt needs. People don't want to hear about a crucified, bloody Savior. They don't want to hear about sin. They need practical stuff. This is, well, the practical. I, I, I assure you, on the practical scale, this probably is a 10 on the Christian doctrine scale, a zero. And his job is to preach the word. <sighs> Sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means in order for us to continue bringing this important outreach to you and doing the work that we're doing, we need your financial support. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or, if you like, you can send your gift to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And with that, I'm off to the woods. I got to purge myself of this. This, If you'd like to email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Honey, do you... Get the rifle out. We 
Yeah, that's right. I know a 308 round is a little bit big for a squirrel, but I, I need some help here. Until next time, may the Lord bless you. Uh, amen. <laughs>